All right, good morning, friends. I hope you guys are doing well. <clears throat> Let's uh, flip over to Acts chapter 27. We'll pick back up where we left off last week, and God willing, we'll finish off 27 today, uh, 28 next week, and then get into the book of Romans as we continue to go through uh, the New Testament. So, uh, by review, uh, if you weren't with us or if you were with us last week, we looked at Paul. And remember, Paul has his um, testimony and his uh, court case, as it were, uh, in front of uh, Herod Agrippa II. And really just tried to hone in last week on Paul's attitude towards those who were both corrupt uh, and wicked and in, in their country's leadership. If you remember uh, King Herod II, he's the grandson of Herod the Great and the son of, obviously, Herod Agrippa I. And uh, remember, Herod Agrippa II is married or at least uh, is civilly unioned with his sister, Bernice. And remember, their sister uh, was married to Felix. Felix is dismissed from Paul's case because he basically took a step too far and was too radical and uh, was killing people too often in Rome and uh, in the Judean area. So Festus takes over. Festus finds out about Agrippa. Festus doesn't know how to deal with Paul's case. He invites Agrippa. Agrippa, the Herod Agrippa II, says, I want to hear this for myself. He's into it. They sit down, and Paul sits with them. And remember, it's, you have the five tribunes. Those are the, essentially the Roman commanders. Each, each tribune commands 1,000 soldiers. We know there was 5,000 soldiers garrisoned there in Caesarea. So it's Paul, his accusers, the five tribunes, Festus, uh, Agrippa II, and Bernice are all with him. And he gives his testimony. And in the end of his testimony, uh, Agrippa makes a joke, remember? And he says, it seems like you're trying to convert me in a short time to be a Christian. Like he kind of diverts him with sarcasm. And so Paul's reply, I think, is pretty profound. He says there, he says, oh, king, he says, I wish you were like me, except for these chains. And what a difference, because at least for myself, and I think I've seen the sentiment uh, resound in others also, and that is that many times when we look at our leaders or we look at people that we disagree with, and when they're backwards and they're wicked, they have weird ideas like Agrippa did, that we say, I wish you were bound, and I wish you would go to hell. I wish there was justice in the next life, and I wish you'd go to prison in this one. Whereas Paul says, I wish you had the faith that I have for Christ, and I wish that you didn't have chains. Look, obviously, Agrippa wasn't chained. And it's such a different way, such a gospel point of view, where Paul looks at this guy who, who holds his, you know, his judgment, as it were, in the balance in an earthly sense, and this guy who lives a radically depraved life, and he doesn't cast judgment and anger and wrath. He says, I wish you'd get saved. That's what I wish for your life. And how we as Christians in a day and age when our world starts to look, is starting to look like it's going crazy, and we can say, hey, we can... We can labor for justice, we can operate within the laws of the country to see justice done, but ultimately that we would look at our governors, at our president, at these people of power and say, I wish you were like me. I wish that you were saved, but I wish you didn't have these chains. And so it's from that place that we were at last week where Paul is experiencing that, that we get to chapter 27. And chapter 27 is kind of that, that crazy boat ride, more of a ship that Paul goes on when he's going to go from uh, so Rome to Jerusalem uh, is about, well, it's 1,434 miles as the crow flies. So it's a long journey he's going to go on. It's on a boat. It's on a rather sizable boat. Well, as we read, we'll get into it. There's 276 people plus cargo on this boat. And you go, oh, boats of that time, they didn't have that many people. Well, that's actually not true. Uh, Flavius Josephus, who wrote The Antiquities of the Jews and other Roman histories, he notes that there were boats that went from uh, around the same area that would go to Rome with the, that took 600 people. So there were large ships in that time that were operating uh, on the Mediterranean Ocean around Crete and so forth. And uh, we even have a graphic that we'll look at a little bit later as we kind of read through this to get, a, get an idea. But ultimately in this boat trip, what we want to look at today, we're going to talk about patience and, and things like that, was what do I do in my life when my life is out of control? Because this boat ride resembles something that is completely out of Paul's control. He doesn't get to decide what boat he goes on. He doesn't decide who goes on the boat with him. He doesn't decide where the boat stops, where the boat goes. You will even read about in one part he advises them and says, I don't think we should do this. And his, Julius, the, the centurion that's with him, specifically ignores him. And they go somewhere else. And it causes great peril. So in our own lives, I think a lot of times we are involved with people and, and whether it's, you know, family or whoever, and they cause drama, and sometimes we cause drama. So how do we 
operate in circumstances as Christians that want to walk with Jesus when they're completely out of our control? How do we respond to that? How do we deal with panic? How do we deal with anger? How do we deal with anxiety? All things that come up when we're walking in a difficult scenario like that. So if you don't mind, we'll pick up here in Acts chapter 27, and we're going to uh, essentially read and talk about what's happening here, and in the end, we'll make some applications. Acts 27, verse 1. And when it was decided that we should set, uh, sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some of the other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And I want to stop briefly there, because this is setting the tone. When it was decided... How many other times in the book of Acts does it say, and then we decided, and we went here. And then we decided, we went there. And then Paul decided, and he went there. And then Paul said, we're going to do this. They decided, the Roman government. So the whole backdrop, the whole context for this trip, someone else decided for Paul where he was going to go, how he was going to get there, and who he was going to go with. All very uncomfortable decisions. Have you ever like, been in a situation where you're like, hey, do you want to come over tonight? Like some friends are going to come over? You're like, I'll take my own car. Why do you do that? Because like, I want to be able to leave. <laughs> if things are weird or if I get tired or I just don't want to, de- I just want to leave. And we live in a kind of a, a free society where for the most part, I mean, obviously we have obligations and so forth. If you don't want to do something, if things are getting out of hand, you can just eject and be like, no, yeah, hey, thanks for dinner. Not interested in dessert. I'm going home, and I'm watching Netflix, right? And and we kind of self-medicate that way. So I'm not trying to be melodramatic here, but think about this for a situation. We get upset if we can't leave a dinner party. Paul is going on a ship with a bunch of other prisoners in the custody of Julius, and there's absolutely nothing he can do about it. And and that's the context of it. How much anxiety and anger would that cause in us? You ever been somewhere you don't want to be there and you're sitting there and you're like, like maybe church, for example, or something. I don't know. It's like, stop talking. I want to leave. You know, whatever it might be, but those, what's it generate in you? Anger. Why can't I just go? Why I'm in this situation? If someone brought you, why did you bring me? Why did you do this? I could be at home right now. I could have ice cream in my hand. I could be a million other places, you know, all these things. Or anxiety, oh, I don't know what to do in this situation. This is so weird. What's going to happen? Where's the boat going? Why is this going on? So all that is going on. This is real-world problems. We, just, we suffer similar problems, sometimes worse and sometimes not as bad. So how do we deal with that type of stuff? Anyway, and embarking in a ship of Adramidium, which is not what skeletons are made of. It is the, uh, a port. It's a port, essentially. It was near uh, where they leave from. So they grabbed this ship, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia. And we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, the Macedonian, uh, from Thessalonica. Uh, the next day, we put, at, we put in, in at Sidon. And Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and to be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Sicilia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra and Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing in, uh, for Italy and put us on board. And we sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Sinaitis. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete of Salmon, coasting along it it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lacia. And we'll we'll talk about this. Go ahead and put the graphic up. So we have, I brought a map. Well, I didn't bring it. I asked Luke to come in the office and be like, how can we make this go on there? So this is where we start. So from here to there is 1,434 miles. Okay, they're going in a giant boat, a ship that has oars and sails. It could be a grain ship. It's hard to say. There's some debate about that. It doesn't really matter, but if you're interested. So the first jaunt they take, they take this jaunt right here, and they stop in Sidon. So Julius, who is the centurion, and it says he's of the Augustan cohort, he is the one who is overseeing Paul directly. And he has a relationship with Paul, and I think this is as we kind of build up to where we want to go, this is important. Because Julius, when they get to Sidon, where there's brethren, 
There's Christians there. He says, you can go stay with those Christians. So in the vein of how we respond to our leaders, how we honor God and our honor the king, and as we love our neighbors, I would pose this question. Why did Julius let Paul go? What happens, and we'll see this played out later on in the chapter, what happens when a Roman soldier loses his prisoner? He receives whatever that prisoner was to receive, whether he was convicted or not. So if Paul runs away from Julius and decides not to go back to Julius, what happens to Julius? Julius is slain. He's killed by, by the Caesar, but it was, it, was, it was Roman law. So it's a big deal. It's not just like Julius was throwing him a bone. It's a big deal. It's a severe trust for Julius to say to Paul, either I will take you or I'll let you go to these brethren. So the question is, what develops trust in a relationship, especially a relationship between an established, remember centurions have to be in the Roman military 15 years before you can be promoted to be a centurion. So if a centurion, a veteran of wars, is now and a commander of troops to now be interested in and to trust and want to do good to a little Jewish dude who's hated by all. What does that? How, do we, how does that relationship occur? I would say like anyone, right? Friendship. How do you develop trust? Kindness. Sharing. Care. That's how a relationship starts, isn't it? Isn't that how, if you have a spouse and you have a healthy relationship, isn't that how it works? If you have any, any friendship that you've ever had, isn't that how it worked? So why go through all this? Why talk about it? Paul was kind to Julius. What if Paul acted how some of us want to act against the government? What if Paul was like, you slimeball piece of garbage. I cannot believe that you're doing this to me right now. You're trash. I hope you rot in hell for this. Get this chain off me. This is not justice. Four times already I've been proved to be innocent, including by Agrippa, and now you're bringing me to Rome. What kind of fantastic language would come out of our mouths? See, again, you see this heart. He has actually generated a relationship with his captor. And it's not that weird one, I forget the name of it, where if you're kidnapped, you develop affection for a captor. That's not what's happening here. His heart and his life is about the kingdom of God and the gospel. He loves Julius. He's kind to Julius. And in that, something happens. Did you know, in the, a lot of times, if you read Fox's Book of Martyrs, when the martyrs that were kind to their captives, to the guards, it's, it's in the book. You can read it from whatever it is, 1547 or whatever, whenever it came out. If the guards liked you, when you were going to be burnt at the stake, they did you a solid, and they got a big bag of gunpowder, and they put it right in your groin. That's if they liked you. And the reason being is because that gunpowder would go off, and, and guess what runs, not to be crass, right next to your groin? Your femoral arteries. So you bleed out in like a minute. So there were Christian captives that were kind and ministered to the guards, and even though they couldn't get them out of the situation they were in, they would do them a solid and they'd give them a quick death. All throughout history, when Christians, for the most part, I mean, obviously, People were thrown to lions. I'm not negating that. When they were kind to their captors, there were certain things that went on. It was, it's said of Polycarp that when he was brought, before he was brought to the, uh, to the um, wild animals, to the Colosseum, to be slain, that Polycarp brought dinner and had dinner for the soldiers, the Roman soldiers that came and got him. And that, they, that they, the people that observed it said the Roman soldiers, they regretted that they loved him. Some of them got saved. And then he was chucked to wild animals and he was torn apart. So it's, he, there's, there's priorities in our life. And, our, is that, and, and there's things that we have to take into account. That we're on a journey and a lot of it's out of our control. And when we lash out at people around us or people that we think may have control or people that we think should be different or whatever it might be, when we act unchristlike to others, it hurts the kingdom of God. Whereas when we act Christ-like to others, it's amazing, and I don't want to cheapen this, but there's, there's benefits to that that exceed, that go beyond even eternity. The fact that he gets to go hang out with his friends. I, mean, that's, I think there's something to that. I don't think we want to overlook these things. 
the fact that he was willing to go through these difficult times, and instead of rage and flesh, they were met with love and care, and it ended in a much different story. Now, in the end, we know he's killed by Nero. We know that. But for the here and now, the kingdom of heaven is built. So what happens here, it says that they, they leave, and you know, multiple times it says that they, that they go in, in the lee, right? So all the times that they go in the lee, what that means is, it's a nautical term, it can be used otherwise, but what it means is they avoided the wind. So it was a southern wind, and so when they went in the lee of Cyprus, it means that they got out of the direct of the wind, that they used the island for shelter from the wind. That's what it means. Now, if you recall back to what we're reading here, over and over again it says, like for example, verse 8, coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens. So they, they kind of, here's the, it says we're out in the open, we go through here, we went in the lee of this, we did that, and now they're here. And they were coasting along with difficulty. And later, in a, in a few verses it's going to say that, well, in the next verse, a much time passed. And there's, I feel like there's probably an application for that. Just simply, God's timeline is not always ours, is it? <laughs> Just a lot of time has passed. They're not busy. They're on a ship. They're hanging out. It's a difficult journey. It's completely out of his control. Maybe he wants to get there by now. Maybe he's upset. Whatever it might be. We don't, we don't know. The Bible doesn't say that. But that's where they're at. So they end up right here at Fair Havens. In verse 9, Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the feast was already over, the feast is uh, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. It's around September, in the middle of September. Um, it says, because the feast has already, was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what uh, Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, and the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they might reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete. That's actually how you pronounce it. I looked it up. Facing both southwest and northwest and spend the winter there. So somehow Paul perceives. doesn't say how he perceived. doesn't say if it was a divine uh, uh, vision. It doesn't say if he just mathematically whipped out a sextant. We have no idea. But he perceives when they're here that they need to stay there. But the rest of the sailors and the captain are concerned because they say it's not a good harbor to winter in. So they say, we're going to try to go from here to here because it has a harbor that is, it faces, basically it'll stop the, the winter storms. And you can see that, that based on our little legend over here, it's what, like 50 miles, 75 miles? So they're trying to get that, they're trying to go that distance. But I like the way that it, it's rendered here for us by Luke through the Holy Spirit when it says, on the chance that somehow, that doesn't sound very good, does it? <laughs> you ever made a decision based on the chance of somehow? It doesn't always work out, does it? So these guys are like, we have got to, this position that we're in is bad. I, we've got to do anything we can do to get out of this position. Desperation so many times breeds destruction. Like we have to be really careful with that, but that's where they're at. And Julius says that he listens to the sea captain, he listens to the counsel of the others, and he ignores Paul. So the plot thickens a little here for us, for Paul. Have you ever been in a situation where you know what is good and what is bad? And somebody ignores what is good, and it affects you. Does it make you feel happy inside? Excited about it? Thankful for it? Not usually, huh? Usually we're, it's offensive. It makes me angry. makes me frustrated. can give me anxiety. What are you doing? Why would you do that? I just told you that I perceived this. And you're going to go with this guy just because he's an expert, right? Just because he owns a boat? That's what's happening here. So Julius says, hey, you know what? No, we're going we're gonna to make, make for this cove. And so they set out. It says there, as we continue, Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the northeaster struck down from the land. 
And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. So it doesn't take long. So it says is there's a south wind, which makes sense. They're here, and there's a south wind. So there's a wind, and that's good for them, right? Well, then all of a sudden, a severe northeastern wind comes down, and it starts blowing them south. Now, the, one of the, the major fear of the sailors of the day, historically, that over here in Sirtis Major, and there's also a Sirtis Minor, in those areas, they were huge quicksand areas. They were lowlands that would be hidden by water, and many ancient sailors of the Mediterranean Sea shipwrecked and died in those soft sands. So now all of a sudden you have this northeasterly wind. See, so it's interesting because that still happens today. I was actually talking to someone after service, Dan Conlon. He's one of our, one of our deacons. And they went on a cruise. He had a rough life. He went on a cruise, and they were, they were cruising around down here in the Mediterranean. And he said, all of a sudden, the storm came up with a northeastern wind. And he goes, for two days, our cabin, we had a, we had a uh, uh, cabin with a view. It had like a little balcony. That's what, a balcony. So their, their cabin uh, was on the 10th floor of this cruise ship with a balcony. And he said, the waves were coming in our door. So it's a real deal. It's a substantial storm. He said, for two days, we just laid on the floor puking our guts out, eating nothing. And I was like, well, that's rough when there's a buffet there. But so it's, <laughs> clearly I would have tried, but, you know, whatever. They didn't. So this, there's, it's a substantial, he goes, we just sat off the, the, the coast of Crete and just were sick for two days straight while this huge, a cruise ship, 10 stories up, are taking waves. So when we read here that they're, you know, year number two, <laughs> whatever, well, what are we at? We're at like 62 AD right now. So in 62 AD, their ship is now being smashed all about by these waves. They're being blown. So it says that their ship couldn't stand to get it, couldn't stand against the wind. It means they've given up and they're just going with the wind. They can't do anything but travel the way that this storm is blowing them. Again, out of their control, nothing to be done. It gets even worse. But soon, oh, sorry, verse 16. Running under the lee of a small island called Calda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. It means they were able to finally get the, the probably not the size of a dinghy, but the small boat that went along with it that they would use to go ashore. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship and then fearing that they would run aground on, this, uh, on the Sirtis, which we've pointed at, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. So the storm is getting so bad that they decide, here's what we're going to do. We're going to bring the boat on board because they're scared it might, it might capsize and they'll lose it. And then they're going to take ropes. So they lower the gear. It means they, lo- they lower the sails. They're not sailing at this point. They're not doing any of that. And they lower the stuff, and they, they take ropes, and they're going to undergird the ship, which means what they're going to do is they're going to wrap rope around the ship to keep it from breaking up. So if you go, it's kind of interesting, you can go on YouTube. I guess you could do it right now. That'd be kind of rude. But, you know, when you get home or whatever, and you can go on YouTube and you can actually watch videos of, uh, like, these 1,000-foot modern ships that we have, these 1,100-foot, these 1,000-foot uh, modern tankers. And sometimes they get in these uh, huge squalls. And there's actually videos from the superstructure where they come up on the wave and the bow just falls off and just boom, right? And so they close bulkheads and they can actually survive a long time with that. So those are modern ships that do that. So these, they're concerned that going up and down in the waves and side to side and all that, that it's actually going to break the ship apart. So they decide, hey, we're going to throw ropes around the ship. And, and it was a common practice. And we're going we're gonna to use that to try to keep the ship together. Now, uh, I lived on a boat for five years. We, we never had to do that. Uh, but I would imagine that if you were um, on this boat and you're not a sailor, you're not an expert, and you see, well, that's weird. They're, they're pulling the sails down. Huh, interesting. You're kind of rocking everywhere. That's weird. Hey, why are you guys throwing ropes under the boat? Well, we think it's going to break apart. Oh, okay. <laughs> Shoot. All right. That seems bad. See, this is just progressive and progressive. And it's completely out of their control. And a lot of times our own life can feel this way. It can feel like it's spiraling. And even the professionals are like, you're breaking apart. 
We got to try to fix this. We're trying to hold you together. Our life can feel so out of control and so spiraling and so hopeless. The the same struggles that we've had from from then till now, they've always been. And so what does Paul end up doing? What what happens in all this? We'll we'll keep reading here. It says, uh, since the verse 18, it says, since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. Now they're just chucking money away. Now they're just throwing away the stuff that somebody was going to sell somewhere to make money. So you know things are bad. When people are throwing money overboard, you know things are bad, whether it was grain or whatever it is what they were carrying. And it says, And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. Interesting that Luke even notes, it wasn't panicked passengers, it wasn't Julius, the sailors, the professionals are taking the tackle, the ropes, the sails, the stuff that makes the ship work, and they are chucking that overboard to make it as buoyant as they possibly can, to to take the least amount of weight to stay above the water. When you see sailors chucking the things that make the sails work overboard, it's a sign it's time for concern. Things are not going well. That's what's happening here. And it says there on verse 20, it gets even worse. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days... And no small tempest lay on us. All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Isn't that interesting wording? So Luke says, it wasn't the captain of the ship that wrote this. It wasn't the sailors that wrote this. It wasn't Julius that wrote this. This is Luke, the beloved physician that Paul talks about. The one inspired by the Holy Spirit. And in his inspiration, he doesn't say their hope of being saved. He doesn't say Julius' hope of being saved. He says our hope of being saved. Who's our? It's everyone. It's Aristarchus. It's Paul. It's Luke. He says we abandoned the expectation, hope being expectation that we were going to survive. Isn't that wild? And doesn't that happen sometime in in our own personal struggles? We just finally get to the point where we're like, I have no hope of surviving this. I don't think I can make it through this grief or this debt or this just absolutely, you know, whatever, whether it's losing a home or a loved one or whatever it might be. I am abandoning. Not just we didn't have it. We abandoned it. There was hope, and we just gave up on our, we abandoned expectation. We couldn't go there anymore to expect that we would be saved. And you can go, well, not Paul. Not Paul. Clearly, That was not Paul. I don't know. Let's keep reading. It says, verse 21, Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and have not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. There's so much packed in this. Number one, back to the idea, was Paul discouraged? Well, You be the judge, because God had to appear to him through an angel and say, don't be afraid. I personally don't believe that Paul was in the best spirits in the world, and God just said, well, just go tell him not to be afraid, just for the sake of saying it. It'll go good in the book of Acts, just put it in there. I think realistically, Paul was told, don't be afraid, because he was afraid. Because Luke told us, we all gave up. We abandoned our hope. You know, the interesting thing about Paul is Paul had already been promised by Jesus himself. Remember in Jerusalem when God appears to him and says, don't worry, Paul, they're not going to kill you because you need to go to Rome and testify to me there. He already had the promise. He already had been told by Jesus himself, you will get to Rome safely. And yet here he's being, and in my opinion, you can throw it away if you like, being needed, he needs to be told again, don't be afraid, you're going to be okay. You know why? Because he's human. How many of us have had promises over and over? We, we can know the scripture inside and out, and yet fear still grips our heart because we're human. 
And we're fallen. And isn't it encouraging that Jesus doesn't appear to Paul and go, what the heck is your problem? I told you in Jerusalem, it's been like two weeks, bro. Why are you upset? I'm going back to heaven. Knock it off. No, he says, hey, you don't have to be afraid, Paul. He reaffirms the promise. He doesn't yank the promise. He doesn't say, I didn't realize you were so toast and fearful, Paul. You're out of here. I'm going to get someone better. He reaffirms the promise. Don't be afraid, Paul. And then there's another awesome glimmer in here where you see Paul's heart. He says, Paul says here, and I think this is just fantastic. He says, don't be afraid. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. What does it mean that he granted them? It says that, that, that God said to Paul, I've granted to you all these people that are traveling with you, all 276. I believe the implication there is Paul was praying for them. Otherwise, why would they be granted to Paul? Why wouldn't they be granted to Christ? Or why wouldn't he just say, I've reserved for myself these 276? But he says, no, to you. I'm giving to you what you want. None of these people are going to die. So again, who is he with? Well, he's with his couple of brothers, right? He's got Aristarchus, the Macedonian from Thessalonica. <laughs> he's got Luke, the, the beloved physician that's you know, chronicling all this. Those are the friends that are with him. And then he's with other legitimate prisoners, Roman soldiers, sailors, people that, you know, whomever, I don't know, just a bunch of folks. Probably not a lot of them interested in Jesus. Maybe some of them. Julius seems to be. But he's praying for all of them. He doesn't say, God, would you please just let these guys drown and me and Luke and Aristarchus catch some sort of raft. And then we can go on with what's important in our lives. And we can leave all these losers who oppress us behind. No, he asked for all of them. That's for all of them. And God says, I'm giving that to you. So there's something going on with Paul. And it's not perfect, is it? Because God has to say, don't be afraid. But even in his fear, even in his dilemma, even in this situation that's completely out of his control, he managed to keep some sort of wit about him, doesn't he? He managed to keep some sort of faith about him. You know, it's interesting. If you don't mind, flip over to James. In James chapter 1, there's an idea here that I think is super important and pertinent to dealing for us how we can deal in impossible situations and how we can deal in situations where we're being driven about, we have no control, the boat's breaking up, the people around us are crazy. How do we work through it? It's okay if there's dilemma. It's okay if there's difficulty. It's okay if there's prayer and crying out and figuring out. That's legitimate. Nobody's saying just, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, keep your mouth shut, and keep soldiering on. Nobody's saying that because it's not what Paul did. Clearly, Jesus had to appear to him personally again and say, stop being scared. It says there in uh, verse 2, James 1, verse 2, Count it all joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for those who doubt... Uh, those, the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Remember, this is all in one context. This is all one uh, one idea. So the first thing he says is, "Count it all joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness." So number one, he says that there's a joy to be had in trials. We do not have joy in what happens. Nobody's saying if you lose a child or if you lose a loved one or if you get fired or something terrible happens, you just go, "I'm so glad that happened." That is not what he's saying. There is no joy in those trials. Amen. There's joy in something else. And that is that God works through the trial. So we're not masochists. We're not like, oh man, I sure love it when this terrible stuff happens to me. No, but we say when this terrible stuff does happen to me, 
I know that God can do something good out of it. He says that in Romans uh, 8.28 where he says that God works all things together for good for those that love him and are called according to his purpose. But he also explains us to it, explains it here for us. He says the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So there's a product from testing. But he says, it tests your faith. Now, what faith does it test? What does that mean? I don't know about for you, but faith to me, and probably just my generation or my puny brain, I don't know which, but faith to me, it always seems like this nebulous concept. You know, whether it's like George Michael singing songs about having faith, or if you ever watch like uh, Firefly and there's like Shepherd Book and he's just like always saying like, you got to have faith or whatever, you know, in your generation, we, it's just it's like this nebulous, just have faith, man. Just have faith. You're like, what does that even mean? Just believe that good things are going to happen? Well, what does it mean when bad things happen? I didn't have faith or my faith failed me or God failed me. What faith do I have? You have faith in the basic tenet of our faith. You have trust. You have conviction. You have consideration that God loves you. The basic tenet of our faith. You don't have to have faith about Calvinism. You don't have to have faith about premillennialism. You don't have to have faith about the hypostatic unit of Christ being God and man. You don't have to have faith in any of that. It's faith that God loves you and that He sent Christ for you. And if He loves you, if He considers you, He's not going to hang you out to dry. So when trials come, the joy that we have or that we experience is not that we know that everything will turn out okay. In this case, it does. They make it to Malta, which is an island up there. You can see it. They chill in Malta for a while, and then a boat comes and gets them to take him to Rome to be killed by Nero. (laughs) Remember, he's going to be martyred. So we're never saying, like, hey, everything's going to be okay. Nothing bad's going to happen. No, bad stuff is going to happen because we live in a bad world around bad people that are like us. So bad will always happen. But good can always be derived from it. Because when he's talking here about asking for wisdom, he says, look, that when we're in suffering and in difficulty and trial, our joy is that, God, I know you can do something out of this because I'm keeping to the faith, the faith that you love me and that you're true and that you're going to work on my behalf. It may not be everything I've ever wanted, but I know that if I trust you for it, then good will come out of it. Good that's eternal. Good that is more precious than gold. Good that is valuable to God and in turn will be valuable to us and to those around us. Valuable in the source of peace, of joy, of kindness. All those things that first bubble inside and and benefit us in our relationship with God and then with one another in building his kingdom. It's important. And then when he talks about being double-minded... It's very unfortunate that so many times we we get, if you're talking about prayer and asking for things, that people turn here and they go, well, if you don't believe enough, if you don't have enough faith, you're a double-minded man and you shouldn't expect God to give you anything. That's not even the context, is it? The context is when you're in trial and you're having difficulties and it's out of your control to, to stick to the idea of your faith, right? To walk in faith that God loves me. So if I am wavering in that, in the core value that God loves me and that he's working in my life for my good, that he wants my good, because that's what agape love, right? The, The Greek word agape is the idea that God morally desires the best for you, that he wants the very best for you regardless of who you are or what your sins tally up to, that he loves you and he wants the best for you. So if I waver in the idea, and how do I waver in that? The society tells me, right? My heart will tell me, if God was good, you wouldn't be going through this. How is he good? How does he want your good? Would this really happen? I mean, honestly, there's even a proverb. I sent it to our staff chat the other day because I forgot about it. Uh, it it's, I think it's out of Proverbs 11. But it says, it says, bad happens to the wicked, and they blame God. And I thought, I, didn't know, I forgot that. I didn't even know. I, I mean, I've, I've read Proverbs before, but that's so us. Everything can be amazing. They're like, we stub our toe and we're like, why did you let this happen, God? You're like, or you just live in a fallen world and your body's broken and you're clumsy. Things happen. And so here we have this, this core value that he loves us. So if you lack wisdom, 
You're in a situation. It's out of control. The boat's going down. The professionals are putting straps around it so it doesn't break up. You don't have any control. And, the, and you say, God, I need wisdom. So knowledge is knowing something, right? Wisdom is properly applying that knowledge. So if I know that, like, if there's, like, a, my, my kids like to cook brownies all the time. And so I hear the timer goes off, right? Bing. And I'm like, oh, it's brownies. And so knowledge tells me, right, that the brownies are hot. And sometimes you can supersede knowledge and be like, maybe somehow there's a chance that I can just shove it right in my mouth and be okay. Right? Somehow if there's a chance, like just like getting to out of fair winds or whatever it's called. Is it, somehow if there's a chance. So knowledge tells me I know this is hot. I don't really care because I'm going to disregard it, and I'm going to try to eat it right now because I want it. And what do I end up? I, I reap the fruit of that, right? I don't taste the brownie. I burn my tongue, which thankfully is the quickest healing member of the body. But so all, th- all sorts of things happen. So wisdom would be looking through the glass of the oven, hearing the ding, and going, okay, I got to let this cool. Take it out, let it cool. Then I can, then I can eat the brownie. So when we're in a situation that's just out of control and is crazy, and we do, we go, I don't know what to do with this. I know God loves me. I know that he's sovereign. I know he could take all this from me in a moment, but he is not. I know that I live in a fallen and sinful world. I know that most of the people around me, I think, generally want my good. So how do I apply that in this situation? So when when we don't know how to apply the truths or when we're wrestling with those things, he says, ask for that. Ask for wisdom. And he says, God gives that wisdom liberally. He pours it out. And he says, there's no reproach. He doesn't get mad at you. He doesn't insult you or injure you like, well, you don't have the wisdom for this? What's your problem? You've been walking with me for years. I can't believe we're having the same problem here. No, he says there's no reproach to his wisdom. None. And so the warning is, if we're, if we're walking in a place, if we're giving ourselves to, a, to an idea, oh, God doesn't really care about me. Whether it comes from the world, people around us, or our own hearts, he says you're wavering. You're double-minded. You can't expect God to give you anything. He's not punitive. The idea here is not that James is saying God is punitive, and if you lack faith, well, then he says, well, I don't care about you. Forget you then. No, the idea is you can't receive it. If you won't even walk in the basic reality that God loves you, because don't we do that? It's like, I tell you, it's like the mantra of our society is, I just can't. I can't go there. I can't do this. I can't do this today. How many memes are on Facebook about not being able to do something today? I think that's like 50% of it, right? It's just, and a lot of it's kind of in a joking way, but we adopt that mentality. I just can't. So if, if we're saying, God, give me wisdom, I just can't. We're double-minded. And we can't even receive from him because anything he tells us, we're going to go, no. No, I can't. I can't go down there. I can't do that. Now, there are definitely times where we feel like we can't, aren't there? And I think there are days where you're just like, man, I, don't, I can barely get out of bed today. I don't know how I'm going to function today. So how do we move past that? Number one, we're taking our thoughts captive, right? As soon as we recognize that I'm not walking in faith, the truth, the idea that I trust that God loves me and that he has the best for me, I admit that. This is the weird thing about human beings is we can know that and reject that and try to walk in that all in the same time or at least pretend we are. We have this weird duality about us. Paul says it this way. He says, the good that I would do, I don't do. And that which I don't want to do, that's what I find myself doing which says in Romans chapter 7. So this battle in our hearts with our, with our old nature, the sinful nature versus this new nature that we've been given in Christ, it's a regular bout. What do we do? That's where we incorporate things like prayer. It's where we incorporate things like worship music. Because if you're in doubt and you're wavering and you're having trouble and then you go on and you pop in like, you know, I don't know, country music and, it's, and I don't know what you like to listen to, but, or whether it's rock and roll or country, and you think about what are the messages that this music gives me? The vast majority of country music is if, if you're married and you have a decent house and a, and a good dog and a tractor, like, you're gold. You're satisfied. Your life is good, right? If you listen to rock and roll, well, then if you're partying and, go, and hooking up with all of the different people and having a, a mad, awesome sex life, then you're good. 
and, and mix some weed in there. And so you kind of calm down a little bit. And then, then you're good, right? That's what the music tells us. If I listen to folk music, then if I'm in tall grass and I have a guitar and I see like a raccoon, my life is perfect. So it doesn't matter what music you listen to, there's some sort of venue that says if you're doing and have these things, you're going to be okay. So why is it, is it sin to listen to music? I'll tell you a little secret. Almost every time I mow the lawn, I listen to Pink Floyd. I have no idea why. It's from my youth. I just really enjoy it. But you know what? I'm not going to go out and kill myself. But it's just, so you just got to be careful. When I'm discouraged, guess what I don't listen to? Pink Floyd. Why? Because then I probably would kill myself. You just, so we, when, you, when you introduce like worship music and these things that you're putting into your soul, when you're already wavering, when you're already wondering, that's why you put on and, and, the, and you begin to, and, and all of a sudden you're listening like, oh, that's right. God is good. Oh, he's standing with me. Oh, he's doing these things. There's real value. There's no magic in worship music. It's the fact that it's repeating into your mind, into your thought process, like God is good, rather than if I had this, I'd be happy. Our whole society is predicated on if I had this, I'd be happy. And it never works, does it? It's never worked in the history of humanity. And so when we do things like, when we talk about getting into the word, when we talk about prayer, we talk about worship, they're not things that make you right with God. They're things that bring you to him. And so when those don't work, that's when you call up a friend. You say, I'm struggling. I know what the word says. I need wisdom because I don't always believe it. Will you pray with me? Will you get coffee with me? You know, these different things that we have. These are just, I don't want to minimize them, but they're tools. They're, they're, they're I don't know, actions for us to walk in because they bring us closer to the one who gave us the actions. The actions in themselves are not the end. They're the, ven- the, the, the venture, they're the, the vehicle to get to God and be near to him. And so here you see, you know, James says, look, if you're lacking wisdom, just ask for it. And when you're, when you're, when you're doubting in faith, repent of it. That's what it means, to turn around from it. Get away from it. Don't, don't keep walking in that venue. Don't do things that, I am, and I'm saying this from my own heart because I'm the king of this. I'm like, I teach the Bible every week, sometimes twice. Why would I want to go read the Bible right now when I can watch Netflix and eat ice cream and self-medicate that way? Taste is, isn't it weird how taste makes everything better? It's like a joke in our society, right? But it's like, you're like, everything's terrible. Is that chocolate chip? What's up? How are you doing? Oh, look, Seinfeld. What's up? Right? Temporal, temporal satisfaction that perishes with the using. So we have to step back from all these earthly things that we try to use to cope when we're in our disbelief and our unbelief and instead move together towards Christ. And it's not punitive that he won't give you what you want. We just need to be open to what he has for us. Does that make sense? And so Paul, in the end, we've got a few minutes here. We'll finish up and back in Acts. We see this, what Paul's going through. We see the struggle. We see God encouraging him. We don't read of him saying, like, I can't or I won't. or thing. Maybe he had those. We don't know. We know he was scared, even though he'd already been given the promise. The storm hits, and it says there, verse 27, When the fourteenth night had come, and we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea. Now, it seems like, can we get that back real quick? Please? Well, the Adriatic Sea is up here, and here's Italy. And in the ancient world, all of this was the Adriatic Sea. It's my fault because I don't ever like talk about things with the staff. I'm just like, hey, let's do this. And they're like, okay. So it is actually my fault. Um, but uh, so the Adriatic Sea is not just, if you were to look at a map, on our modern map, the Adriatic Sea is really just along the side of Italy, but it's actually the whole area in the ancient world. Is it there? It's not there. Okay. Um, so he says there, uh, so they, they, let's see. So verse 28, so they took a sounding, uh, literally a sounding, if you were to translate that into English, means they threw the weights. <laughs> so it's the idea that they have a lead-weighted rope, and they took a sounding of it. So they're dropping it down to see how deep it is. So the 14th night, they took a sounding and found uh, 20 fathoms, so it's 120 feet. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found it 15 fathoms, uh, 90 feet. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. 
And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. And then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. So just just contemplate that for a second. So some sailors, they're scared to death, and they say, hey, we need to let the boat down because oftentimes they would row an anchor out away from the ship and then drop it. And then that way the ship, there's already some lead to stop the ship. Because if you drop an anchor straight down, then the ship moves a little bit, right? So they would paddle out. So they go, hey, we need to, we need to put some anchors out. So we're going to lower the boat down and we're going to drop some anchors for you. When in actuality, they're like, peace out. Like they were just leaving. They were just going to try to get away. And so Paul tells the centurion, he tells Julius, he says, hey, Jules, if these guys leave the boat, we're all going to die. And how do you know that? I have no idea, but he did. And so he says, if this happens, we're all going to die. Check out what the soldiers do. They cut the ropes to the only thing left that could possibly save them. They cut the ropes to the lifeboat. They cannot go ashore now, right? Because that the boat that's there, I shouldn't call it a lifeboat, it's more of a dinghy, but the small boat that they had is how you ferry people ashore from the big boat. They cut away their only earthly hope of salvation on the word, as what tradition would tell us, is a short little Jewish guy. That's powerful of who they thought Paul was and and the impact that he had had on their lives as a prisoner. The love, the kindness, the fruit, the spirit of Christ that dwelt on him, that they say, you know what? We will cut the only hope of our salvation in this life away on your word. It's amazing how far a little kindness and the fruit of the Spirit can go in a person's life. They cut the boat away. 33, as the day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. So evidently, they're so sick, they're in suspense that, oh, what's going to happen? They're not eating. I mean, perhaps they were snacking here and there. We, you know, I don't know if he's making an absolute statement there, but he says, hey, you need to eat. Verse 34, therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. Once again, the servant's heart. He makes some bread. He gets some food. Hey, guys, eat. You know, if I was in that position, I'd be like, you know, all y'all, Just stay on the boat so we don't all die. But other than that, I got nothing for you. You're rude. I'm in prison. I'm tired of this. It's been 14 days of this. I need some me time. Just get away from me. But here's Paul, who, I mean, if you were to read his his Christian, you know, uh, what do you call that letter, the whatever that you forgot the word. Not manifest, but the thing that you, you turn in when you want a job? The resume. the resume. If you were to read the guy's resume, he's like, beaten times without number. I've been beaten, he says, so many times. I can't remember how many times I've been beaten for Christ. Sleepless nights. Robbed in perils of brethren, he says. Brethren that attacked him. Just all the crazy things. So you would think that Paul would have a certain sense of entitlement, wouldn't you? A sense of like, I am the Christian. I wrote the letters. I like invented the New Testament. Somebody make me some bread. I'm hungry. Serve me. You know how many times I've been beaten? How many times have you been beaten? (laughs) That's what I thought. Make me some bread. Because that's how human beings act outside of Christ, isn't it? I've done X, therefore I deserve. I'm convinced this is a total like rabbit trail. I'm not going to go down. I'm convinced It's the source of virtually almost all moral pastoral failures. I deserve, therefore I'm going to take this on the side. That's a whole other sermon. I'm convinced of it. But he doesn't do that. He makes bread. He gets food. And he says, guys, eat the food I got. Eat the food. That servant's heart. You know what? It's so important in, in trial is to not stop serving. And I don't mean like, if you're, if you're wrecked, like I get it, you, you take a day, you take a week, you take, I, I get that, I'm not saying that. But so many times when we're in trial, we think, we think reservation, pulling into ourselves, that that will preserve us. 
When in reality, continuing to walk in what God has for us in, in ministry, in context, I'm not saying burn yourself out, it actually preserves. And so Paul, he's in this place and he says, look, here, eat the bread that I make. So he eats the bread, it says, verse 35, when he had said these things, he took the bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. And they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now it was that it was day. I'm sorry, I know we're out of time, but let me just make this point. He encouraged them. <laughs> he encouraged them. That's so valuable. An encourager in the darkest times. Because that's where we're going as a, as a world. And we know. We, we've, we've read the back of the book. We know where the world is going. The world needs encouragers. The church needs encouragers. The church does not need smack talkers and naysayers. I understand there's brokenness, and brokenness needs to be addressed in all of that, but the church does not need sin sniffers, people that find stuff out and broadcast it, people that gossip, people that love the tidbit. The church does not need those people. The church does not need people to go, oh, you wear a mask, you're giving in to fear. Oh, you don't wear a mask? Well, you just hate everyone. The church does not need those people. The church needs lovers of souls and caretakers People that say, I made bread for you. <laughs> we're in like the worst situation ever. Here's some bread. All right. Thank you, Jesus. They were encouraged. How, when you're down and out, how awesome is it when somebody comes along and encourages you? Here, I brought you some bread. We always think, like, it's just some bread. Why would anyone care about a little bread? It's just bread. But then we bring it to somebody like, here's my, like, my crappy bread. I shouldn't say that. Here's my, my crummy bread. And they're just like, this bread means everything to me. This is amazing. And you're like, really? It's just some lame bread. Thanks so much for making me bread. We need encouragers if we're going to survive what's, what's coming to us in this, in this next generation. It says, Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, and at the same time, loosening the ropes that tied the rudders, they hoisted the foresail to the wind that they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground, and the bow stuck and remained immovable. And the stern was being broken up by the surf, and the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. And he ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first, and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all brought, were brought safely to land. And it's, you know, the, the journey doesn't quite end there. But in this case, they were all brought safely to land. God made good on his promise. It wasn't a fun journey to the land. It wasn't the, the best earthly journey that went to the land. But they made it to the land. And the thing is, you're not going to die, and I mean like emotionally, <laughs> you know, not just physically or physiologically, but emotionally and spiritually. You're not going to die. You're not. You're going to make it. If, if we allow God to work in our faith and ask him for wisdom. I love it. Jesus said it this way. We talk about all about the food and clothing. You might remember from, from Matthew 6. He said, don't worry about tomorrow. It's got enough evil of its own. I love that. Because doesn't it seem responsible to worry about tomorrow? It seems like I should. If I don't worry about tomorrow, who is, right? I mean, who's going to fix my tomorrow if it's not me? I'm not saying be irresponsible. But like, tomorrow is Monday. But it's not here yet. So whatever's going to happen on Monday is going to happen on Monday. But today is Sunday. And whatever's going to happen today is going to happen today. And so we can walk in that, whether it's good or it's bad, and know that there's a purpose and that there's growth and there's joy to be had, regardless if we get to row ashore on a cruise ship or if we swim ashore for our lives. But at the end of the day, God's going to reap good from it. And we'll, it'll develop a steadfastness in, in us, which means it's the word hoopamoni, means the ability to stay behind or to stay under pressure. 
And he's going he's gonna to develop that in our lives. There's something being worked out in you that's great and wonderful, and it's more precious, as the scripture says, than gold. It's more, it's more precious than the most valuable thing in the world because it's eternal. So God has great things for you. And uh, I hope that you can be encouraged that even if you're down in the dumps today, it's not the end. That God is still working and he's doing great things. And he's not abandoning you. He's got encouragement for you. He's not, he's not condemning you. But he loves you and he wants to bring you along. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and the examples that we have of the people that went before us and how you were faithful to them whether it's Paul or Lydia or your own son, Jesus. Lord, we thank you for your fidelity. Lord, we pray that you would bless us with your presence and with your wisdom as we go into this world that is full of tumultuous problems. Lord, I pray for those who feel like their boat is sinking, who feel like the the professionals have given up on them. I pray, Lord, that you would be with them, you would know them. I pray you'd help them to focus on your things and what you have and not on uh, this world the enemy of our souls, or even our own deceptive hearts. Lord, I pray that your word would go forward with power. We pray, Lord, for our community, that we would go forward in this dark day where Christians are despised, and we would give the gospel freely with love and with kindness. And Lord, we thank you for being so good to us. You've never let us down. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, God bless you guys. If anybody like prayer, we'll be up here to pray.